Well, as I, as I said before, my name is Josh. I'm the, the preaching minister here at Alliance Christian Church. I would love if you would uh, join with me in prayer before we start into God's Word. Father God, we just, we can't thank you enough for your Word, for giving us your written word that you can help us to study, that you can help us to learn and understand your nature and and how to apply it to our lives. And so, Father, we just ask as we study your word today that you would soften our hearts, that you would help us to learn what it is that you want us to learn. God, I ask that you would be with me. I ask that you would help my words be clear and concise. I ask that you would give me the ability to handle your word faithfully and true so that I'm presenting uh, truth to Alliance Christian Church. And we thank you so much for your redemption, for your all-knowing, all-seeing, never-ending love. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So we are jumping into our Ruth series. We're going to be on chapter 2 of the book of Ruth. And we're doing this series that, that I'm calling Finding Hope in hopeless situations. And, and so where we, where we left off last week in chapter 1, there was a woman named Naomi who was married to a man named Elimelech. They were in, in Israel and there was a famine, and so they had to leave and go live in the region of Moab uh, to, to, to last out this famine. Ruth's husband ends up dying. Their two sons marry Moabite women, and then they end up dying. And so Naomi and Ruth are in this sort of hopeless situation as they, as they travel back to Israel to hopefully find food, to find a place to live. And so as we talked about last week, when we were looking at chapter one, we saw all these tiny little seeds of hope that God was planting in Naomi's life. He was planting a seed of hope in her life by giving her Ruth, by giving her someone who would stick by her side and be with her. He was planting literal seeds of life by bringing them into Israel during the time of the barley harvest where they were able to get food and actually survive and obviously, they, they, they were having seeds of hope planted by the fact that in, in chapter 1, verse 6, it says, The Lord showed concern for his people. The Lord noticed his people. God saw Naomi's suffering and cared about her. And so we had these little seeds of hope as we, as we go into chapter 2. And that's, I think, a little bit of a really glass-half-full way to look at things in this situation. She's got food. She's got companions. She's got God on her sides. Um, and I was curious as I was, as I was going through this show of hands, you don't have to be embarrassed, but who considers themselves to be like a glass half full type of person where you see the optimistic side of things? Maybe you got a couple little, who's more of the, the glass half empty and it's okay if you are, we need both types of people in the world because the optimist can sometimes miss the big glaring problems where the glass half empty person's like, yep, we need to fix this. But as we, as we look at the end of, of Ruth chapter 1, Naomi has this, I don't even know that I would call it a glass half empty point of view. Because if, if we look at her situation, I think it's fair for us to say that everything is not sunshine and rainbows as she's going back into Bethlehem. Realistically, her glass is less than half full. At this point, I don't even think we could call it half empty because Naomi has just spent the last 10 years 
as a widow. In, in a land of famine, she's lost her children. She's lost her husband. Her glass is drained. Her glass is more than drained. It's got the, a few little drops in the bottom, and from her vantage point, the glass is now shattered on the ground, and she's going back home holding shards, trying to figure out how she's going to put her life back together. Because, I mean, the thing is, she, she does have these seeds of hope. God is with her. Ruth is with, with her. But it's not going to be easy. So they're, they're going back into Bethlehem, and, and, and they're going to try and survive through the barley harvest. See, Israel had this law that was given by God that when you harvested your fields, you were required to leave some of the grain standing in the field so that the orphans and the widows and the poor and the disenfranchised were able to come in and gather. It was like a welfare program where they could go in and at least at the bare minimum they could have food to eat. And if you were cutting through your fields and you missed some, you weren't supposed to go back and get more. You were supposed to leave it for the poor, for the orphans, for the widows. But let's, let's be honest. Laws are only as effective as the people who follow them. Laws are only as effective if the people in charge, the judges, the leaders, are going to enforce those laws. And if you've spent any time reading the Old Testament, Israel does not have a very great track record for following God's law. They could barely keep themselves from worshiping idols. What do you think the odds are that they're going to actually have farmers who are actually obeying this law to help provide for the poor? And so Naomi and Ruth are going into this situation. They're, they're holding these shards. They're going into this bleak situation. And if we're the, if we're the, opt, or the pessimist person, if we're the realist person, we're going to look at this and say, this is going to be tough. See, number one, they're going to have to go in and find somebody in Bethlehem who's actually following this law, who's leaving their fields un, unharvested so that they can go in and eat. They could very realistically show up and have all the fields be picked dry. And you know, you're like, oh yeah, well there's a law. There's a law that says they have to. Yeah, big deal. Big deal there's a law if nobody's following it. Number two, they're going to have to find harvesters and people who are not only following the law, but they're following the spirit of the law. Because technically, they could go into Bethlehem and have one little stock of grain in each corner, and that's technically following the law. The, the, the Bible doesn't specify how much you're supposed to leave. I could very well see that they could show up and have that type of situation. And number three, they're going to have to face the fact that they are widows, they are vulnerable women who are going into a very dangerous situation. Like I know in our culture today with with feminism and all that, we don't like to talk about it, but the fact of the matter is that, is that they're in a dangerous situation. They're likely to be assaulted. They're likely to be abused, kidnapped. And I, after all of that, if they're able to find food, to stay safe, to actually find enough, they're going to have to find a field where they can actually collect enough food to actually survive. Because realistically, if you're going in and you're harvesting behind the leftovers, you're not going to have very much food. 
You're going to maybe get a little flour sack and that's about it. And you're going to have to try and stretch that and make it last. So as, as chapter one ends, it's really not a surprise that Naomi is walking into this situation with a really bleak outlook. In, in chapter one, verse 20, right before we start chapter two, it says, Naomi replied to the women in the village. It says, she replied to them, says, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. But she replied, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because the sovereign one has treated me very harshly. Mara in Hebrew means bitter. She says, I left here full, but the Lord has caused me to return empty-handed. Why do you call me Naomi? Why do you call me pleasant? Seeing that the Lord has opposed me, and the sovereign one has caused me to suffer. And on a certain level, after all Naomi's gone through it, I, I can understand how she has this viewpoint. But I want to point something out about the style of this book that we're reading. See, in our Bible, Ruth is located right in between the book of Judges and the book of Samuel in what we would call the history section. And if we're categorizing the Bible in our English Bibles, right, we have, the, we have the law, then we have the history, then we have the poetry, then we have the prophets. But in the Hebrew Bible, in the original Hebrew Bible, they organized things a little bit differently. So in the Hebrew Bible, you had the Torah, which is the first five books of Moses. These are the laws. This is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then you had what was called the prophets. And the prophets included... What we would think of as the prophets, it included Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah, but it also included Judges, Joshua, Samuel, Kings. All of those, what we would call history books, are in the prophets. And then the third section of the Hebrew Bible was called the Ketuvim, which means the writings. There, these are a lot of poetry-type books, books that are written in parable style. So you think Job, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and Ruth. Ruth is actually right next to the book of Job in the original Hebrew Bible. And the reason that's important, the reason that's fascinating is because what we're getting here is a historical account that's told in the style of a parable or in the style of a story, the genre. And so we have this, this narrator, this all-seeing narrator who's writing the book, and then you have the quote-unquote characters, right? Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, as we're going to meet in a minute. And they have this limited point of view, but then the narrator of the story knows all, like you're reading a parable, but it's an actual historical account. And so it's like if you ever watch a movie, and one of the characters in the movie turns to his buddy and says, hey, you know, at least it... it it couldn't get any worse, and then the, the, the movie freeze frames and the record scratch comes on and the, the narrator comes in, little did he know, it could get worse. That's kind of what we have here. So Naomi is talking to the women and she's like, the Lord is punishing me, the Lord is, is against me, I left here full, but I came back empty. And then at the very end of, of, chapter, of verse 22, it's like, Naomi returned accompanied by her Moabite daughter. Now little did she know, they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest, right? We're getting the, the narrator, and that narration continues into chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to use my narrator voice. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side of the family named Boaz. He was a wealthy, prominent man from the clan of Elimelech. All right, that's the narrator's comment. Now we're going to zoom back into the story and see the point of view of our characters. 
We cut back to the story in verse 2. And it says, One day, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field so I can gather grain behind whoever permits me to do so. Naomi replied, You may go, my daughter. Your Bible might say something like, Let me gather grain and in whosoever's eyes I find favor, or something like that. Which is just an ancient Hebrew way of saying, I'm going to just hope for the best and hope that somebody feels sorry enough for me to let me gather grain in their field. If, my, if, their eyes find, if, if I find favor in their eyes, that means they're, they're looking at my situation and they're going to say, all right, come on, you can come do the gathering. So we don't starve to death. And remember, this is an indication that it's not a guarantee that they're going to find food. She has to go find somebody who's actually going to allow her to harvest. This is a big leap of faith. So in verse 3, it says, So Ruth went and gathered grain in the fields behind the harvesters. Now she just happened to end up in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. I want you to hold on that phrase. It just happened. It, it just so happened. This is one of those narrator moments where we're getting to see things from Ruth's vantage point. Of all the fields in Bethlehem, it just so happened that she ended up in Boaz's, who just so happens to be a relative of Elimelech, who just so happens to be wealthy and prominent. And as we read through this, I think we, the reader, are kind of getting the little wink and nod from the author where, where Ruth is thinking, oh, wow, what a happy coincidence. I just so happened to end up in the right field. What a lucky, what a lucky circumstance. But it's, like, it's almost like the, the author of Ruth is like, little did she know, God was behind the situation the whole time. It, because these just-so-happened moments are going to pop up again and again and again all throughout the book of Ruth. Just like this one here in verse 4, it says, Now at that very moment... Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. Right? That's a just so happened. It just so happened that Boaz showed up at that very moment. Let's, let's play this out. You're, you're a widow. You're going to collect a little bit of grain from the fields, and so you pick one seemingly at random, and it just so happens that Boaz comes back from town right at that moment. Like, you could have... Five minutes in either direction, and they could have missed each other. Ruth goes out, collects a little bit, doesn't find what she needs, goes to another field. Then Boaz comes back, and they never find each other. But it, quote-unquote, just so happened that she was in the right place at the right time, right when Boaz shows up. And, of course, we understand. We understand that God is working and weaving through this broken situation. But Ruth doesn't see it yet. Naomi doesn't see it yet. But God never stops working in our lives, even if we can't see it. At that moment, he arrived from Bethlehem, and he greeted the harvesters. He says, may the Lord be with you. They replied, may the Lord bless you. It just so happened that Boaz was a faithful follower of the God of Israel. He uses God's name to bless people. And that might, that might not seem like a big deal. 
But as I said before, if you spent any time in this book, you're going to realize that finding somebody who is faithful, who's going to follow God's law, who's going to understand what God has in mind for his people is less common than you would think. So it just so happens she ends up in the field of actually someone who actually follows God. God is setting up these divine appointments. This is something that that I think God does a lot more often than we realize. Where maybe God's not miraculously providing for your needs. Maybe he's not allowing manna to come from the sky like he did in Exodus, but he's setting up these divine appointments where you are here and a person is here and you just happen to end up in the same place at the same time and it all just kind of flows together. And that's what we're seeing here. This divine appointment that God is setting up between Ruth and Boaz. So Boaz shows up And in verse 5, it says, Boaz asked his servant in charge of the harvesters, To whom does this young woman belong? The servant in charge of the harvesters replied, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the region of Moab. She asked, May I follow the harvesters and gather grain among the bundles? Since she has arrived, she's been working hard from morning until now, except sitting in the resting hut a short time. So Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my dear. Do not leave to gather grain in another field. You need not go beyond the limits of this field. You may go along beside my female workers. Take note of the field where the men are harvesting and follow behind with the female workers. I will tell the men to leave you alone. When you're thirsty, you may go to the water jars and drink some of the water the servants draw. I think we need to appreciate how big of a step up this is, is for Ruth. So here's, here's a little bit of a picture of how harvesting would have worked in the ancient world. You're, you're, obviously, you've got no combine. You're not going through with a tractor. You've got groups of servants. Usually, you'd have the men who would go first with the sickles and cut. And then you'd have another group behind them, the female servants, who would, they would cut what the men left behind, especially if they weren't following the law properly. And then they would do the gathering and the bundling. So you had this really efficient assembly line going through the field. And then you'd have another group of servants who would just carry the water jugs for everyone. Right? There's no camelbacks or Nalgene bottles. So you've got clay jars and you've got other servants who are bringing the water through the field so that you can efficiently harvest by hand. And after all of those groups had gone through methodically like an assembly line, then the orphans and the widows and the gleaners, the ones who could come in and get the leftovers as per the law of Israel, then they got to go through and collect the leftovers so that they could survive. But guess what? If you weren't part of the harvesting operation, if you were one of the poor widows or orphans, you didn't get an assembly line. You didn't get a a servant who was carrying a water jug next to you. You did it all. You had to haul in your own sickle. You had to haul in your own twine. You had to haul out your own barley. You had to bring all of your bundles. You had to Haul in your own water, otherwise you had to go back to the well every time you needed a drink of water. It's like when I was was a kid, when I was in high school, I used to make extra gas money by 
by building barbed wire fences for folks. And, and that was one of the things I was pretty good at, that I would find some rancher who needed fence built or fence repaired, and I'd say, hey, can I, you know, give me 20 bucks, I'll build your fence. And when you're building barbed wire fence with, with a group of people, it's really nice. Because you can have one guy take all your T-posts and just go space them out. And then behind him, you've got another person who's got the reel. Uh, and then you've got another person who can pull out the wire. And then you've got another person who can go through with the, the pliers and, and pull and stretch. And so you can kind of methodically go through and you can build a fence pretty quickly. But when you're a 17-year-old kid and you're doing it by yourself, you do all of it. And so you've, you've got a picture. I was just about as scrawny as I am now, but... You know, you got your T-post driver here, and your tamping bar over the shoulder here, and your post hole diggers here, and then you've got, you know, you're walking out, and you've got your T-posts, four, four or five T-posts on the other shoulder, and you're hauling this stuff, and you've got everything, and you get about, you know, 100 yards in, and you're like, where's my pliers? And you look back, they're about 50 yards back that way. <sighs> you turn around, and you go back, because you left your pliers at the last wooden post and you bring them all back and then you're like okay get going man I'm thirsty where's my water bottle <sighs> all the way back there so that's that's if you can imagine that if you've ever done that kind of labor that kind of work you can kind of imagine what Ruth would have been doing on top of that Think about it, if she's going through the field and they're just leaving leftovers, she doesn't get to just do a straight line through the field and chop and bundle and chop and bundle. She's got little groups, like a little little bundle over here she goes over and cuts, and then a little bundle all the way on the other side of the field she's got to go over. So she's getting a lot, like her, she's getting all her Fitbit steps in, I guarantee it. And so Boaz comes in and he's like, you don't, you don't have to do any of that. You come up here with the women you don't even have to do your own cutting. All you got to do is just gather and bundle. Oh my, can you imagine what a load off of her that would have been? You don't got to haul, you don't even have to haul your own water. We've got guys that'll do that. You just, you just go over anytime you're thirsty, you just get a drink anytime you want, and all you got to do is just scoop, tie, scoop, tie. So I, I think we should really appreciate what kind of an amazing step up this was for her from what she was doing before. And, and Ruth acknowledged that. So in verse, verse 13, excuse me, in verse 10, it says, Ruth knelt before him with her forehead to the ground and said to him, Why are you so kind and so attentive to me, even though I'm a foreigner? Boaz replied to her, I've been given a full report of all that you have done for your mother-in-law following the death of your husband. And how you left your father and mother, as well as your homeland, and came to live among people you did not know previously. May the Lord reward you for your efforts. May your acts of kindness be repaid fully by the Lord God of Israel, from whom you have sought protection. And she said, you really are being kind to me, sir, for you have reassured me and encouraged me, your servant, even though I will never be like one of your servants." So she recognizes just how big of a step up this is, but I don't, I don't think she quite recognizes that this is a divine appointment by God at this point. Boaz is going above and beyond what the law required. The law just requires you to leave some extra grain in the field and, and the poor folks can go in and collect what they need. So Boaz is, Boaz is going above and beyond. 
But he gets better. In verse 14, it says, Later, during the mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, have some food. Dip your bread in the vinegar. So she sat down beside the harvesters. Then he handed her some roasted grain. She ate until she was full and saved the rest. And again, I think this is one of those little things that we might not fully appreciate. But you're out harvesting all day long in the hot Bethlehem sun, and you get around lunchtime, and, and what are you, you going to do, grind some, some grain up? And Boaz is like, no, 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 we've got a full cooked meal. We've got bread, we've got vinegar. You just come eat. And not only did she get a full meal during the day, she got a full meal and she was full. I mean, how good is it to have a full, actually have a full belly when you're, when you're working and you're, and you're tired? Obviously, you know, then you have that after lunch nap. I don't know, I always feel tired after I eat too much. But, but still, it's this, this above and beyond that Boaz is doing. And in verse 15, it says, When she got up to gather grain, Boaz told his male servants, Let her gather grain, even among the bundles. Don't chase her off. Make sure you pull out ears of grain for her and drop them so that she can gather them up. Don't tell her not to. So, so she gathered grain in the field until evening. When she threshed what she had gathered, it came to about 30 pounds of barley, which your Bible might say around an ephah, which is about 30 pounds. That's why we've got it here. So if that wasn't enough, if it wasn't enough that she got a full meal, it wasn't enough that she, got, she didn't have to haul her own water, she didn't have to do her own cutting, now Boaz is making it where she doesn't even have to bend over to pick up grain. He tells us, just leave, leave some, some bundles standing in the field and she can just reach over and, and grab them. And then he tells him, on top of all that, I want you to make sure she has extra and she's not going to take as much as she really needs. So I want you to take more out of the bundles and drop them on the ground so that she knows, no, 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 this is for you too. And she gets 30 pounds of barley. This is an insane amount for somebody to be collecting. Okay, I want you to picture 30 pounds of barley is like a five-gallon bucket heaping full in one hand, and then two, on top of that, like two Folgers coffee cans heaping full, like the big ones. That's about 30 pounds. That's about an ephah lugging that back. That is a lot of food. And all of this because she just so happened to end up in the right field at the right time with the right person at the right place. Because God was working in her life. And I've noticed through reading scripture and also just through life experiences that that one of God's favorite ways to work in our lives is through his people. God God could have sent manna from the sky. We know he can do that. God could have made their food multiply like the jar of flour and oil with Elijah in 1 Kings 17. He could have made their food just appear like Jesus multiplying the bread and the fishes. He could have done all of those things, these supernatural, miraculous ways to provide for Naomi and Ruth. 
But God's favorite way to work in our lives is through his people. Through these divine appointments. Through these just-so-happened moments. In, uh, in 2019, my, my brother-in-law, really, really close with my brother-in-law, we were best friends, he took his own life. That was my shards moment, where my glass wasn't half empty. It was, it was shattered. And, and as, we, as we went through that whole process of grief and, and going to the funeral and all of that, um, my, my daughter was only a few months old at the time. Theodore was, I mean, just barely out of, out of pull-ups. And... It just so happened, put a wink on there, it just so happened that we were at a church that was small. It was about like the size of this one, maybe a little bit bigger. See, we had gone from a fairly large church where you're kind of anonymous and invisible, and we had gotten kind of tired of that church, and then for a brief period, we went to a really, really small family church. And then maybe three or four months after uh, my brother-in-law's death, we had ended up in a large church, the kind of place where you're just anonymous again. But for that brief moment, it just so happened that for whatever reason, we were church shopping and tried a new church. And so people knew, people cared. They ended up paying for our train tickets to go to Denver out of the church budget, no questions asked. It just so happened that that's the place we were. It just so happened that they were there and they knew our situation, where if we were at any one of those other churches, that wouldn't have happened. It just so happened that his brother, who we were staying at at the time, um, at his house during the funeral, him and his family had decided to go back to church for a while, for maybe a three or three to five month Span. They hadn't gone before, and they, as far as I know, have quit going to church since. But it just so happened that that was the time in which they were at a church. And so they had a family who came and brought meals every single day of the week. It just so happened that another church that we had gone to before um, had, had a generous policy about their minister coming. And so that he, he came and did the entire funeral service free of charge, even though it was, there was no connection there. We, hadn't, we weren't members at that church. It just so happened that all the right people we needed in our lives were there at that exact moment. God works through his people. He takes the broken shards and, and he uses his people to, to weave it together into something good. And in verse 18 of Ruth, it says she carried it back to town, this 30 pounds, this massive bucket and a couple coffee cans full of barley. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much grain she had gathered. Then Ruth gave her the roasted grain she had saved from the mealtime. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you gather grain today? Where did you work? May the one who took notice on you be rewarded So Ruth told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked. She said, the name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be rewarded by the Lord because he has shown loyalty to the living on behalf of the dead. Then 
Naomi said to her, this man is a close relative of ours. He is our guardian, or your Bible might say redeemer. The Mo- Ruth the Moabite replied, he even told me, you may go along beside the servants until they have finished, harvest, finished all of gathering all the harvest. Naomi then said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, it is good, my daughter, that you should go out to work with his this, with this female servants. That way you will not be harmed, which could happen in, a, in another field. So Ruth worked beside Boaz's female servants, gathering grain until the end of the barley harvest, as well as the wheat harvest. After that, she stayed home with her mother-in-law. And as we close out chapter 2, we're kind of left on a little bit of a cliffhanger as we go into chapter 3. See, Naomi finds out who Boaz is. The all-seeing narrator, us the reader, has seen this happening the whole time, but now our characters are getting the information for the first time and they're putting the pieces together. And Naomi says, Boaz is a relative of my deceased husband. He's a redeemer. He's a guardian. Because let's be real here. It's really good that they were able to have food through the harvest, through the winter, but that's a temporary band-aid fix on their financial situation. That food's going to run out. And you've got to hope that, what, maybe Boaz is still around next harvest. You've got to hope that that's going to last until next harvest. So short-term, this is an amazing blessing by God, but long-term, what they need is somebody to provide them. See, in ancient Israel, everything depended on lineage. If, you're, if you didn't have a direct lineage to somebody and, and their property, that did not get passed down and you had nothing. There was no way for you to just go buy new land or go and work your way up. You were stuck. If you didn't have a tie-in with Israel and the family, if your lineage was broken, you had nothing. And Naomi realizes that Boaz is somebody who's going to be able to redeem them, to bring them back in so that they can have a field, so that they can have a farm, so that they can make a living for themselves. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more next week when we look at chapter 3. But needless to say, this is, of all these little seeds of hope, this one's the biggest. They're, they're going into this situation and they're holding shards. And for the first time, this giant seed of hope just gets plopped right in their lap. And they're like, I think that this might turn out for good. They realize that. But I think, when we, I think we need to understand with these shards, when you break a glass, it never really goes back exactly the way it was to begin with. I'm never getting my brother-in-law back. That, that glass is shattered. Naomi is never getting her two little boys back. She's never getting her husband back, at least not in this life. It doesn't go back. But I think we need to recognize two things. When our glass gets shattered, number one, God didn't break that glass. Even though we might feel like the hand of the Lord is against us, we might feel like God is punishing us, putting his thumb on us, God didn't do that. 
We live in a broken world that's broken by sin, broken by our own failure, broken by Adam and Eve, broken by the fact that entropy exists, and we just live in the type of place where things get broken. It's not even always a result of what we did. Sometimes it's just a result of the fact that we live in a dark, broken place. But God steps in. God puts people in our lives. He sets up these divine appointments. He gives us opportunities to be redeemed. God steps in and he takes those shards and he'll take one and he'll place it here and he'll bring another person in your life and place it here and he'll take that broken thing that was not useful anymore and he will craft it into the most beautiful work of art, this mosaic piece of redemption. Because that's the kind of God we have. Our God is the type of God who likes to take broken things and make them beautiful again. They're never the same as they were before, but he makes them beautiful. He weaves good into the brokenness. It was God who took the brokenness of Joseph and his family when his brothers sold him into slavery. It was God who stepped in and turned that broken situation into good. It was God who stepped in and took the brokenness of the disobedient Israelite people wandering in the wilderness. And it was God who stepped in and took that brokenness and set those people apart for his good purposes to redeem the world. It was God who took broke fishermen and broken tax collectors and turned them into disciples to spread the good news. It was God who took the broken man Saul who was persecuting and murdering Christians and persecuting the church and God took in and took that brokenness and turned it into something good, turned him into the New Testament's most prominent preacher and letter writer. It was God who took the broken body of his son on the cross and the darkest day in history and the brokenness of the people in the shouts shouting, crucify, crucify. God took that broken mess and turned it into a situation in which the world can be redeemed through him. His body that was broken for us, God used to redeem us. If you take nothing else away from today, I want you to understand that God takes broken things and he makes them beautiful. That's what he does. That's what he's doing here in Ruth and that's what he can do in your life. And if you have an opportunity to be one of those divine appointment people and step in and help fix the brokenness in somebody's life, I urge you to do it. And when people step into your life and when God sets up divine appointments for you to help fix the brokenness of your life, I ask you to just give glory to God for that. That God put that person here. He put you in this exact place at this exact time in order to redeem you. Will you pray with me? Father, we bless you and we praise you. We thank you for fixing our brokenness, for crafting the beautiful mosaic out of our broken shards. And we just ask that you would continue to put people in our lives to set up these divine appointments for us. We thank you so much for your son and his body that was broken on the cross. And it's in his holy and precious name that we pray. 
And the church said, 